the other key thing right now is, uh, and we're doing lots of work across the boards at the moment, is added value. So if you know that companies are recruiting less or not at all, then it's about being front of mind when they do need someone. And just because someone isn't recruiting today doesn't mean that tomorrow someone doesn't hand in the notice and then goes elsewhere. Uh, and therefore, they might suddenly need someone at that particular point. So it's the putting yourself up on a pedestal, not just as an expert within your space, but as someone who's not just constantly selling the whole time to these companies. And actually, it's those added values, which, for example, could be a, a webinar, uh, it could be salary surveys, uh, it could be inviting people to events where there's you know, a speaker with a hot topic. There are so many different angles you can take, um, but it's actually encouraging companies and boards and particularly giving themselves the time. Hello, everyone. It's Neil Carberry, the REC Chief Executive here. Welcome along to another edition of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. Delighted to have you with us and uh, hope you've ha- you're having a, a good a beginning of uh, Q4 through October and uh, just at the beginning of November, starting to see the end of the year come into interview. Lots to do in recruitment business around the country to bring that calendar year in in shape. And, uh, you know, at the time we're uh, we're bringing this this to you. So six, seven weeks of uh, of activity left to stay focused and set up for a really great 2024. Um, today's podcast, we're going to be looking at some of the uh, some of the questions you might have on your mind as a recruitment leader um, do, uh, in thinking about that run into another year. Um, before we move on to that, though, a few updates uh, from the REC. Got a busy events calendar in November. A fantastic partner event with JobAtter on the 9th of November, looking at AI and its potential effect on the recruitment industry. Uh, we've got member forums. I'm in Birmingham on the 14th with West Midlands members. And we're also, we're also hosting a forum in Southampton on the 16th of November. Plus, two big events in London uh, uh, this month are Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Summit. That's on the 28th of November uh, in London. And of course, our awards on the 23rd of November. And if you're booked for that, I'm looking forward to uh, to seeing you there for what is always a great night, our biggest in some years this year, which is uh, going to be a great way to celebrate uh, some excellent successes across the industry. Two further things to mention, the latest data, uh, the uh, report on jobs will be coming out in the first uh, uh, few day, a few uh, full week of November. Do look out for that. There's been a pattern over the last few months of a of that slowing in the permanent market, just starting to dissipate a little bit. Hopefully, we'll see something like that continue. Tent market still flat to modestly growing, but of course, underneath there, there's lots of pressure from high interest rates and client be- payment behaviours, uh, and uh, and often uh, billings are being offset by higher wa- higher wages when temp numbers are actually down so look out for that data uh, we published our labor market tracker on the 3rd of november and that showed that while there has been a gentle decline in new job postings over the last few months actually the activity levels are still pretty high by comparison to pre-pandemic and certainly in those sectors where we've seen ongoing shortages throughout this year in hospitality healthcare engineering logistics sectors like that so plenty 
uh, of activity still in the market and we'll look forward to chewing the fat on all of that in our final webinar of the year our final talking recruitment webinar of the year which is on the 5th of December so do come and join me and the team for that for a little bit of Christmas cheer but also a, a review of where we are as an industry and and how we move into 2024. And thinking about how we move into 2024, let's turn to our uh, guest for today, who's Alex Arnott, the creator of Founders. Uh, Alex, welcome to the REC podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Neil. So uh, let's root the conversation to begin with. Tell us a bit about what Founders is and why you created it. Yeah, um, well, Founders is about supporting uh, 10 founders of tech impact companies. So companies that are making the world a better place uh, in varying ways, and it's helping them simultaneously by supporting them with a quarter of a million pounds worth of free board level advice uh, and coaching and support and other things that go alongside that to ensure that they are successful. Um, because uh, the boards that I sit on currently are a mixture of recruitment and technology. And on the technology side, uh, unfortunately, 75% of tech companies fail. So I want to ensure that the ones that should be successful, i.e. the ones that are making the world a better place, are the ones that get the most support. So uh, that's what Founders is going to be doing and giving them this free support throughout 2024. Fantastic. And really interesting because what I want to dig into uh, today in terms of our discussion is where the challenges are and mm. and that 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 boundary between recruitment and technology obviously has dominated everyone's thinking uh, during this year and I, th I think as we come to the end of the year probably we've moved on a long way from kind of toying with chat GPT in Q1 and are now thinking much more about lots of exciting stuff to come down the track but there's actually quite a lot of dislocation and potential tech opportunity for the industry in the short term with stuff that isn't that is nearer term than things like AGI that dominate the media debate what in your experience thinking about that commercial picture for where recruitment owners and operators are um with the tech kind of opportunity sitting there in the background what do you think are the three big challenges facing owners in in our sector right now yeah certainly certainly across the boards that i advise and the people that i sort of network with and have regular conversations with um it, it does change obviously subject to the market uh, and the niche and the size of the companies that people in but i'd say predominantly across most of them number one right now is quality job flow um uh, you know it's job numbers are down significantly across many sectors since last year um, and also with more candidates available, there's more direct hiring, which of course in turn has led to less need for external recruiters. Um, and with many companies stalling on headcount growth or the rate of headcount growth that they've had previously to this year, um, uh, I guess mainly to do with the economic climate, uh, that has then affected those needs, as I say, for um, external recruiters. So quality job flow, absolutely number one. But, you know, there are still jobs out there. Uh, and as always, the answer is to ensure that, you know, your teams are well trained, well planned, prepared to work harder and smarter, but for the same results. Um, uh, you know, owners should focus on driving, I guess, internal competitions and training based more on quality activity and behaviours right now to, to mirror this. That's the first one. Uh, the second one I'd say is around internal recruitment teams. I know people have been uh, struggling with that in many sectors for a while, um, but 
right now clients are being prepared to take a little bit more time over hiring the right person within their business and with lower headcount growth many clients are taking longer because they're fundamentally waiting to look for someone who's more like the perfect hire that they would like to get uh, and alongside that internal recruiters are therefore expected to fill a higher percentage of the roles that are actually coming in yeah. uh, though again alongside this there are opportunities as always you know with companies hiring less many internal recruitment teams have been reduced or let go altogether so this does create opportunities for the need for external recruiters as and when companies are looking to hire um, and then the third one i think at the moment uh, is hiring quality experienced recruiters, which has probably never gone away uh, since um, uh, you know last 10, 15, 20 years. It's always been the case. Um, but at the moment, I think their focus is more on experienced recruiters who've got the ability to win new business because of that reduced job flow. Uh, and the biggest challenge, I think, is not just finding the right level of recruiters who've got that experience who are looking to leave for the right reasons, but actually it's the ability of the owners to be able to do interview processes where they can ensure these experienced recruiters can both walk and talk, particularly when it comes to BD skills and uh, their abilities to be able to do that are absolutely um, key right now. I think you've put your finger on a couple of things there that clang like a symbol from me on feedback from REC members over the last yeah. few months. That piece around business development skills we've discussed on the podcast in the past, but um, for a number of years, post-pandemic in particular, job flow has been so high that a good effort and the right attitude to delivery mm -hmm. has seen consultants be able to make big numbers. But lots and lots of REC members have said to me over the course of this summer and autumn, that what they've seen is their experienced recruiters start to outperform effortful um, earlier career recruiters because mm -hmm. of the set of business development skills that they've built up, client handling skills. And, you know, one of those client handling skills is, you know, the point where, you know, how you carefully persuade a client uh, that direct hiring isn't working for them, mm -hmm. um, you know, just an example someone shared with me this week of you know a, fir a firm that's taking months to hire has been through hundreds of CVs but is refusing to go to a recruitment firm because uh, because of the inverted commas cost associated with it you know mm. one of the things we did at the REC a, a number of years ago and which we're looking at re revisiting is you know the cost of a slow or bad hiring process is far higher than the cost of uh working with the right partner so there's a lot of kind of framing of where uh recruitment um services um set that that it takes an, a skilled consultant to be able to find yeah absolutely and i think the other key thing right now is uh, and we're doing lots of work across the boards at the moment is added value so if if you know that companies are recruiting less or not at all, then it's about being front of mind when they do need someone. And just because someone isn't recruiting today doesn't mean that tomorrow someone doesn't hand in the notice and then goes elsewhere. Uh, and therefore, they might suddenly need someone at that particular point. So it's the putting yourself up on a pedestal, not just as an expert within your space, but as someone who's not just constantly selling the whole time to these companies. And actually, it's those 
uh, added values, which, for example, could be a, a webinar, uh, it could be salary surveys, uh, it could be inviting people to events where there's you know, a speaker with a hot topic. There are so many different angles you can take, um, but it's actually encouraging companies and boards and particularly giving themselves the time in the current market where they might be sort of scrabbling around a bit more and more worried about cash flow and deals being done, um, actually finding the time to give themselves that thinking space to come up with those creative ideas, which are those value adds. I think that's that's spot on. Uh, you know, one of the things I've learned from recruiters who've been in the industry longer than I have is, you know, when they're not hiring is actually your best time to be talking to your clients mm. because you you can understand how their business is changing, where their needs will be when they do hire, and and you're not in that position where you're kind of how making quite an unsubtle sales pitch that the nature of recruitment is a is as a professional service and i think our success is based on behaving that way and everything you've said around the challenges that recruiters face that bit about hiring quality experienced recruiters you know a number of rec members i've talked to have said well we're, we're cautious of the experienced consultant market because we don't know that people have been brought up in the ways that we want to run our business. Mm. Um, and of course, part of the challenge there is um, not just how you um, how you make sure that you hire the right people, but also once you've hired people, how do you bring them to your way of doing business, dealing with people who are not new starters, but who have experience and skills. And that requires a... Uh, a kind of a level of thinking about medium term development for for even experienced consultants that if you are not capable of standing back a little bit from your business you uh, you might you might not see as it whizzes past you yeah absolutely and also it's um being willing and open to seek out new ideas mm. you know if you have come from a certain recruitment background and then you've then gone and set up your own company, um, actually, you have a very limited amount of experience. Um, and that maybe that previous company was amazing and perfect to everything that they did, in which case, happy days. But the reality is that, you know, you know things I know, and I know things that you don't know. Um, mm -hmm. The world goes around by learning more from more people. So if these owners are going out and seeking uh, either through networking or other REC members, their experiences and what they're going through. I find most people are pretty open and actually in a tougher market, they're even more open at sharing ideas. Uh, each person can learn a new idea from every single person collectively. That means your whole processes as business can be far more impressive than they currently are. And therefore, if you are looking to bring someone on with experience and you've got those concerns by sharing experiences with other people and how they've successfully done it, as well as the uh, mistakes that they've made, then of course you're more likely to make those processes right and, and, and make it successful hires. You know what, that's, that, that's really resonant with me from the point of view of the business I run. You know, mm. just this week at the REC, we've been having discussions about making sure colleagues understand where the REC creates value. And of course the REC creates value in lobbying and campaigning for the government, the government relations and the media positioning and the services and all of that. But actually the bit that's under, I think, underappreciated sometimes even by our own team is putting people in a room where the solutions are around the table and not necessarily from the podium um so that that piece around us as an industry having those peer-to-peer -peer discussions 
and learning from each other. A bit of feedback from one of our recent ones where someone said, you know, I just really wanted to come to an event and ask people what they were doing on tech. Mm. And and my reflection is the same as yours. I think I've said this on the podcast in the past, but I think we are a long way in terms of rooms full of recruitment owners and leaders from where we were 10, 15 years ago in terms of people coming to the room with the fences up. Yeah, um, I, I, I think there's a maturity in the sector now that means, and it's, as you say, especially in tough times, that there's some stuff here which is, if not non-compete, is not fundamentally about individual clients. So, you know, thinking through things like how do we collectively solve our issues on equality, diversity and inclusion, thinking through things like how do we collectively think about how we make our investments and and adoption of technology effective. These These are themes where it actually serves the industry well for us to share uh learning and and i i'm you know it's one of the things that makes me most hopeful about the future of our industry that that i'm seeing that stepping up happen across the across the board yeah i absolutely agree with that and in addition uh, i mean I, I sit on 35 boards across recruitment and technology companies and the reason i mention that is because that's 35 different experiences mm-hmm. so you're able to share across that portfolio not just recruitment but also outside of recruitment i think sometimes you know recruiters think well this is our niche this is what we do this is the way we've always done it but actually if you challenge it and listen to what other people are doing outside of that sector and technology obviously is a great example of that because they tend to be very forward thinking there's some amazing things going on which you can learn from wrap it into your recruitment business and make it even more successful and give you a usp Fantastic. I think that is exactly right. Um, and so I'm going to put you on the spot. You having <laughs> said that, Alex, and you can. So, so let's think about where we are as recruitment owners right now. Mm-hmm. So we had a market that grew reasonably steadily, reasonably well through the teens years of this century. We then had the pandemic. Everyone was in it together to a certain extent in 2020. Uh, all our whiteboards cleared off. Um, we then had a bounce quite quickly, actually, probably by the middle of the summer of 2020 in um, in temp, a bit later in perm, a few bounces around as we went through second and third lockdown. But basically from the summer of 21 through to the late summer of 22, we had probably the highest level of demand uh, in our market that we have ever seen. And, you know, I'm I'm fond of saying, you know, we shouldn't baseline our businesses to that because that was a year where we were getting two years of activity in a single year. Yeah. We've seen a fall off pretty steadily in Perm since, la- since summer 22. And some of that's coming off that height, but I think we're now probably kind of a, a low ebb of the of the economic cycle. Labor market's still quite tight though, unemployment's low. So, you know, it will tighten up again quite quickly if growth picks off, picks up and, and growth might well pick up as the bank ceases trying to squash it uh, to keep it inflation down. Temp, temp has bounced around, but it, it has is basically uh, still doing okay, even though servicing is hard because of course, temporary recruitment firms have massive short-term debt on their balance sheet and and that short-term debt at 10% is a lot uh, uh, lending rates from the bank is a 
is a lot uh, more to deal with than when the rent lending rate is two or two and a half percent. But broadly, if the market's not bad, it's certainly harder. So thinking about that and going into 24 and probably businesses have you know, said at the top, got six weeks now to be thinking about how do I have a really good launch into 24. Revenue, profit, value. What are the tips that you'd give a recruitment owner now? Yeah, I think the first thing, and actually ties in quite nicely with the time of year, though I do understand that uh, not everyone's financial year end is conveniently a calendar year, but being Indeed. where right now that um, planning and process, I, I am obsessed with planning and process. So if you've got better plans, it's a kind of, if you don't know where you're going, how can you be sure you're making the right decisions? Uh, and I've always found that probably at least 90% of recruitment companies and the, the founders, owners and boards, they grow organically, i.e. they make some money, they invest some money, they hire some people, they do some stuff, they make some money and they grow from here going outwards. But the problem with that is you don't necessarily know whether they're the right decisions or where you're ultimately trying to get to. So I've always talked about a three year plan beyond three years is too far away. It's too un unpredictable. Um, but less than three years is too short term. So I'd say right now is a great time leading up to Christmas and the break uh, to get your three year plans in place, to have a think about, you know, what are the key milestones? What's the overall objective you want to achieve? For example, are you trying to achieve a certain net profit figure, a certain valuation figure, a certain size of company? What are your objectives? agree then what those milestones are and then of course once you've got that at three years you can then start reverse engineering the entire process and making better short-term decisions break it down to the next 12 months make people accountable um, and like everything if you can take any big number uh, and I, I scale up lots of companies that are very very large and uh, they ask me to think big with it so i can take big numbers reverse engineer the entire process and then of course if you deliver those small bite-sized milestones consistently with excellence on a monthly basis every single month. Guess what? Three years time pretty much takes care of itself, you know, within certain conditions and the right advice along the way. So for me, I would say right now, the number one is absolutely get a, a great three-year plan in place. It doesn't need to be a 70-page document, just something high level, reverse engineer the process, and then go and break that down and start delivering it, number one. Number two, I think there's opportunities, and it's not now new. I would say a few years ago, this was a relatively new model, but again, because of my uh, the tech side of the advice I give, I'm always thinking about subscription models. So, you know, you go back a few years, um, certainly pre-COVID, companies with strong contract books were always the ones that were gonna receive the biggest multiples. They always gave um, uh, owners the biggest confidence to accelerate growth because they got guaranteed income coming in um, and so they that was a great model but actually with everything that's happened over the last few years there's now a number of permanent subscription models so as an example companies to hire 10 people it's going to be £10,000 average per fee, but £100,000 worth of fee. If you were actually to go, look, we'll charge you, say, £7,500 a month to deliver those 10 and leave it all with us, the company's saving money. 
you are obviously getting a less risky and a better model. It gives you confidence to reinvest for growth, which means you get ahead of your competitors. Um, your team are happy because obviously there's constant business coming in. Um, uh, and it's a great contractual obligation from the client to add value to the business as well. So there's so many reasons why it's a good thing. So it's creating, finding the right types of clients, um, showing them the benefit of that type of model, how they're going to get an increased service and save money because of it. Um, and I know businesses now that, for example, came to me at the start of COVID or early in COVID where things dropped off a cliff and they were saying, well, what do we do? I, I showed them how to do this, uh, this model in detail. And many of them, it's been so successful now, they've actually got rid of their transactional traditional recruitment model, and they're only doing a subscription-based model. Now, that's a starting point. Then you want to take it to the next level. Then you can start wrapping around pieces of technology around this. And actually, a lot of people think, oh, that's expensive, or it's scary, or I don't understand it. But actually, it's not as expensive as you might think, or as scary as you might think when you know what you're doing. And, uh, and in certain instances, we've now actually rebranded recruitment companies from being recruitment companies that then have a piece of technology to actually technology businesses that are enabling recruitment. Um, and the valuations, um, uh, the strength of the business, the interest in those businesses of people wanting to join and invest in them has massively, massively increased. Um, and I know it's not ultimately always about exiting at some point in the future, but I guess people like to know that they've got a business with some kind of value. If you think about in the recruitment space, there's only a finite pool of people that are going to be interested in investing or acquiring recruitment companies. You take that into technology and it hugely increases. So actually, I think another thing people can do is to think about the subscription model, but also the way that they are presenting themselves as a brand of the business. Um, externally to their clients and candidates. And then the final one uh, I would suggest right now, which is a nice one, it's a quick, easy win, everyone can do it. It's just to run more at-desk coaching sessions uh, or listen obviously to calls remotely if you have a fully remote workforce. It's, it's almost become a bit of a forgotten art form, I believe. And even companies that are doing this, they don't do it often enough, in my opinion. And without fail, every time um, I sit next to even the most experienced recruiters. And as an aside, not only do I sit across all these boards as the board advisor, but I still mentor five recruiters who each bill over a million pounds in the current market. So these are obviously superstars. Yeah. So even sitting next to those individuals, every single time you can still pick up things which are help supporting them to be either more successful or to avoid some of those deal-breaking mistakes. You know what? I think in, a, in an industry that requires us to be quite extroverted, that on that last point and you know you do have to be a bit extroverted to you know, pick up the phone hit the phone the way we do as recruiters that bit about self-awareness is mm. really interesting you know i think that one of the things that has helped me as i develop as a chief executive is kind of being willing to look go back over a call and go did i do that well mm. what could i do better and the the idea of kind of being willing to self-assess but also to to get to offer feedback in the right ways as managers and leaders absolutely, absolutely agree with that kind of time out second at desk let's think about how that that might have worked in a really positive framing for people absolutely. people's development feels to me we we, you know, we constantly have this discussion about training and training does matter qualification does matter but uh, but actually you know the, the 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 kind of tools in your toolkit as a recruiter matter too and you can 
you you can help uh an awful lot with staff development that way the your other two i mean uh, to a certain extent your um um to preach into the choir with me that that piece about subscription models it mm. is about it is about understanding the market we now play in mm. um and people you know we don't live in a labor market where supply is going to be loose especially for in-demand skills therefore we're actually a critical part of a supply chain for clients in a way uh, even more so than we the, than we were before and there are different models that that clients might go for for that but it is throwing us into spaces where other sectors are playing whether those are tech and uh, tech led uh um offers or their offers that are come out of places like uh strategy consultancies there's a whole range of uh potential models starting to develop and i definitely see to your point the largest firms in the industry redefining themselves as hr services people services firms rather than just pure play recruiters and that of course um is reflected in the range of different partnership models that we've seen grow over the last decade and more you know kind of the different versions of subscription and i think i think navigating that is is a big challenge but thinking about how you offer value and how you differentiate yourself it is going to be in things like kind of what can we do around our tech the three-year plan point is is fascinating because I think the challenge for any small recruitment owner is not to think the three-year plan is a nice to have but mm. but rather to have the three-year plan and then have that moment once a week where you sit back and go have all my actions this week advanced me towards my goal for 150 weeks from now um, and that that process and discipline is actually quite important in changing the short-term actions you take in your business as well so I love that as well um, I'm gonna just before we finish Alex you hinted at exit mm-hmm. and and of course for for most s- small recruitment business owners they have a uh you know s- some of them are on a, a kind of lifestyle program so they're looking at exit exit years from now um but but many of them are thinking about where can i take this business scale it up pass it on to the next set of investors and managers and then refocus to on my next bit of entrepreneurialism so mm-hmm. before we finish i just wanted to ask you about well let's think about that that exit point what are the things that kind of get in the way of achieving a good exit for a recruitment business owner in your experience yeah well um having led 25 successful exits for recruitment owners to date um hopefully i'm well placed to share some interesting information about what people do and don't want because uh, actually i'd say that uh, one of the biggest barriers uh, for most recruitment companies is that they are subscale. And I don't mean that in a in an awful or patronising way. It's just the reality that with a finite pool of purchasers and investors out there and acquirers, of course, the bigger you are, the less risky it is, the more companies tend to be involved. And so uh, anyone who's sort of under half a million pounds worth of VBIT net profit um, uh, they are generally considered subscale and therefore for lots of companies, um, they may not be of interest. And I think alongside that, the owners quite often have unrealistic expectations about what the business is worth. I mean, uh, the amount of times that people have come to me 
uh, to give them a, a quick valuation of the company. And you ask some basic questions and they come back with things like, well, we've got three recruiters of which the owner is the biggest recruiter uh, and they've got a number of accounts which none of them are contractually obliged. Uh, it's all permanent recruitment. Um, and they're saying things like, yeah, but I've had these relationships for 10 years. And I said, well, that's great, but that's no guarantee they're going to be 11 years. That's so not income the new owner is likely is confident <laughs> yeah, of necessarily I, banking. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But, um, but at the same time, you know, exit objectives are subjective. You know, if I give you three examples out of my current portfolio. I've got one person wants to sell for two million uh, because it's going to pay off their pension. Everything else I've got sorted. I've got someone else who wants to sell for 30 million because they want to set up a safari park in South Africa. And I've got someone on the tech side who won't sell for less than a billion and, and is probably going to get it in the path that they're currently going down. So it's very subjective. And as, as you pointed out as well, some people it's for lifestyle. I advise a bunch of social impact businesses, particularly in the tech space. Again, they, they're just about making the world a better place. It's not about making profit. But if people are seriously thinking at some point that exit is an option, then again, the key is to decide what they're thinking, what makes that worthwhile target for them and start planning today. The sooner you can start this process, the sooner you can do something about it to make it more likely to happen. So you start thinking about your team size, your, your focus, your scale, your ratios, uh, all of these things in advance, like I said before, the three-year plan and then reverse engineer it, go deliver that consistently and of course you're more likely then to get a honest objective view of what you need to do to achieve those objectives so the first one would be around subscale uh, second one i think is poor succession planning um not tying key people in um so what i mean by that is people might offer share schemes and lots of people do that but quite often it is as soon as there is an event those people because of the share schemes are allowed to get the money and then of course lots of them might leave so there's no guarantee they're going to stay post an event which is not one a purchaser wants so if you are putting share schemes or revenue and bonus schemes in place make sure they're tying in your key recruiters and managers one to two years post exit um, so therefore if someone's buying a company they know that that team is likely to stay uh, with them and of course there are two parts to our uh, recruitment deal, aren't there? There's the valuation and then there's the makeup of it. So the valuation might be you get X million pounds of money, but actually you might only get 50% of it up front and the rest of it over four years. Now, that's quite a risky purchase. You obviously want most of it up front and less on an earnout. So the stronger your succession plan, the stronger your management team is in place, the more you can prove that you are not involved in the business, uh, the less onerous the earnout is likely to be for you because, again, it's less risky coming in. Um, so I think that's the second one. And then the third one I'd probably put across, again, around uh, poor business planning uh, can actually lead to slower growth as well. I mean, if, if owners haven't had a successful exit before, they may not know what acquires typically look for, both positively that can increase the chance of a sale and the value or negatively that delivers the opposite. So, again, creating that three year plan will help dictate what financial and team size targets you need to deliver to achieve your exit valuation ambitions and give you that honest view now. And if you don't hit those targets, obviously, on a regular basis over the next few years, don't be surprised if you don't achieve your ambition. That, I think, is really helpful. And I'm reminded listening to you of something Greg Savage said to me once, which is um, the thing about focusing on a sale is actually quite a good thing to do, even if you're not focusing on a sale. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if you everything you've just described sounds like running your business well for creating value. 
Yes. I, and so it's kind of that taking that view of your business as an owner and that can be quite, that can feel quite emotionally difficult because of the the level of kind of personal engagement that you you have you know I know uh, members of the REC who would have paid off their mortgage by now if it had not been for the fact that they remortgaged their home to uh, to afford to keep their staff staff post furlough before the pickup you know there's a level of personal investment in building uh, a business up that that sometimes pulls against that that approach but actually the just the mental discipline of thinking about a sale for your business feels like the kind of thing that is helpful going back to our previous discussion about a three-year plan yeah well well, if i was to sort of um scratch away the veneer and summate what my real job is uh, when i'm advising these companies is to put um owners in the position where they've got the options and the reality is when you get to that point, some people decide they want to stay. Some people might want to do an MBO. You might do an EOT, a trade sale, private exit. There's loads of different things you could do, but actually you might not achieve what you want. You might not get that sale value that you want. You might not get the structure of the deal that you want. You might not find the buyer that you want. So you have to actually carry on anyway as if it's not going to be sold and it's going to continue growing. And then the secondary part of that is that Virtually every single deal that you're going to do is going to have some kind of earnout period. No one gets to walk away, very unlikely in the current market. So therefore, that could be one, two, three, four years. So you're going to have to hit extended growth targets anyway to achieve the final part of your overall valuation. So even when you get to that exit, potential exit point, you've still got to be growing at the business forward to achieve the, the, the maximum valuation that you want. Such a good point. You've always you basically have to have done the work to take advantage of the sale point when it comes, because if you start when the sales point there, it'll be gone by the time you finished. I think I've seen that in 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 the se- uh, sector over the last couple of years. Alex, that's been fantastic. Thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for your time. If people want to find a bit more about founders and the work that you do supporting uh, supporting firms, where can they look? Yes, if they go on to uh, founderswithaz.co.uk, uh, alternatively, they can go onto my personal website, which is mynonexec.com, uh, and they should get everything. Otherwise, say hi on LinkedIn. Always happy to uh, to network. Fantastic. I'm always a fan of of a Z. I was commented to colleagues recently that one of the things that's filled me with uh, gloom recently is I found myself putting a C in the month of December uh, because, of course, <laughs> as a Scot, we all the the great shibboleth is we all put a Z in December and it's December. Uh, so I, I like I like I like I like a Z appearing every so often where <laughs> where one doesn't expect one. Alex, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you. Very welcome. And thank you to all of you for joining us on this episode of Talking Recruitment, the REC podcast. Uh, do uh, check out the back catalogue if you'd like a little more of recruitment podcast action before you're done today. Episode 20 with Russell King of Pixids about MSP opportunities for staffing agencies in this market. Episode 21, our last one, unpicking hiring trends and early career uh, uh, hiring choices with some of the data that's been uh, gathered by Rajlal of total jobs and yes I did ask him about the, uh, their pricing strategy in that one so worth tuning into that for a, uh, for a bit of an update uh, there but I hope you've enjoyed this episode look forward to talking to you again on another episode and have a great end of 2023 and all the best to you and your business 
as uh, we go through the last couple of months of the year. Thank you for listening today. I hope you took away some valuable thoughts from this discussion. If you'd like to hear more, head to rec.uk.com forward slash talking recruitment or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Simply search Talking Recruitment to find us.